Welcome to the Heart of Dating Podcast. Hey, it's Kate. I'm so glad you could join us this week as we try to untangle the ever so ambiguous world of dating as a Christian. Over here on Heart of Dating, we get real as we answer some tough questions and uncover transformative ways to approach Christian dating. Oh, and you better believe we have some laughs along the way, because last time I checked, the struggle is hashtag real. You know what I'm saying? Now, let's get to the heart of the matter. Hey, hey, everyone. I am so excited to have you back for our last compatibility series episode today on the Heart of Dating podcast. I know, I know, it's a bit of a sad day, y'all, because you guys have been loving the series, and honestly, so have I. I had no idea that this would turn into what it's turned into. I started thinking I would just do a handful of episodes on things like age gaps and height and weight and the list, and then that would be it. But this turned into something so much bigger. Now we are nine episodes deep into this series, and it's been so incredible. We've covered so much ground. We've talked about age gaps, height, weight, chronic illness, ethnic differences, political differences, different physical boundaries and sexual past. Wow. Y'all, the point of this compatibility series has been to open our minds about who we might consider dating and why and how we may be eliminating potentially amazing people based on preferences that we are treating as non-negotiables. Now, here's the deal. Earlier in the series, we did a roundtable episode about ethnicity and dating. And on that episode, we had an incredible black woman named Abigail, an Asian man named Gareth, and a Hispanic woman named Gabriella, who shout out is from our heart of dating team love you girl and honestly you guys this conversation was incredible we talked a lot about stereotypes of specific ethnicities we talked about how some ethnicities are favored over others especially on dating apps we talked about the hypersexualization of different ethnicities and we covered a lot But I also walked away feeling as though we needed to cover even more ground when it came to ethnicity and dating. So I was thinking about doing a part two to that episode, and as I was debating who to ask to be a part of the part two conversation, I immediately thought of my friend Susie Gomez. Susie is Canadian by birth, Korean by heritage, Mexican by marriage, and American by immigration. She is passionate about matters surrounding reconciliation, racial justice, and the gospel. Susie and her husband Marcos met at Fuller Theological Seminary while getting their MA in Intercultural Studies, and now they have four beautiful Latasian children. After serving as a youth pastor and church planter in South Central LA for 14 years, Susie continues to teach and preach around the country and now lives in Long Beach, California. So y'all, in this conversation, we are talking ethnicity and dating part two with Susie Gomez. And y'all, we are going there. We are getting into it with what are the challenges? What are some of the tools you need when you are dating somebody of a different ethnicity? What about family? And what if family doesn't approve? And what if that's a big challenge? Does that change if you should or should not consider dating someone? I love Susie's answer to that question, actually, and it really surprised me. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. And overall, y'all, I just really hope you feel seen and heard, but also challenged by the series that we have done. And I got to say this as well. I just have to throw it in there. This has been such a great series and I have a feeling it's not over. We may bring it back later on because there's even more things to cover when it comes to qualities and things and topics that make us maybe not consider a potentially amazing person. But today, let's get into this conversation with Susie Gomez about ethnicity and dating. Susie Gomez. Girl, I'm just so happy to have you on here. We were just catching up. And I'm so glad that not only did we virtually meet a year and a half ago, but now we've met in real life. So we could say like, hey, girl, I know you. (laughs) Right, right. It's been a while. I know. It's been a while. How are you? You know, the first time we got connected, you were in our Heart of Dating conference in 2020, our first conference we ever put on. And, you know, I think Ashley Abercrombie was the one who shared your name with me. I love Ashley. I love all the work she's doing. Yes, Yes. (laughs) me too. And she was like, you need to connect with Susie. Let me tell you about her. And then I went to your page. I looked up your things and I was like, 
oh my gosh, I love this girl. And so, and you actually did a talk in our conference about ethnicity and dating, so to speak. I forget the name of your, the topic actually, or what you actually <laughs> called it. What, do you remember? Yeah. It was kind of funny. Joked, yeah. I <laughs> joked about calling it, uh, what was it? Thinking of dating a boo from another hue. But <laughs> from another view. Oh my god. Yeah. That I love uh, it. I don't know if we ended up calling it that, but I think you referenced it within yeah. the talk, which was yeah. my favorite. And it was just so on my heart for that conference for us to cover a plethora of topics and including ethnicity and dating, including racism and dating and how that plays out. And so um, we did that a year and a half ago. I've loved just the work that you do. I love hearing you speak and getting to know you just a little bit in this last year and a half. I was so thrilled to be able to meet you in real life. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Susie and her I husband. I saw you from across the room. Yes. Yes. She's more beautiful in real life, y'all. Oh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. Um, But it was was such an honor. And then, so let me catch you up to where we are today, Susie. So we are doing this series on Heart of Dating. I kind of fell right into it. I had no intention for this series to become like a full-blown thing because earlier this summer, we did a whole series on the LGBTQ plus community and the church. And then I was like, you know what? After that, let's just take, let me just do a few solo episodes and we're just going to go into just a few episodes on compatibility. And then as I started this little break series, not break, but it was like a break from that series, the LGBTQ plus series, all these other things started coming up. Like it was like, I, un- I uncovered this can of worms, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh. So height and dating, that's a big deal. And white and dating, that's a big deal. And well, wait a second. There's a whole other list of things here. We also talked about age differences, but then we started getting into political differences and we got into ethnicity differences. Like we did a conversation. I'll share about that in a second. We talked about chronic illness and dating. We talked about a lot of, oh, we talked, oh, recently about physical boundaries and sexual past and dating and just all these things that may affect the person that you're willing to date, you know, and the things that we have in our minds that are maybe eliminating us from possibly considering wonderful people based on just a variety of the factors I just listed. And so the, really the point of this series that it's become is to open our minds about who we might consider dating and why and how we may be eliminating potentially amazing, wonderful, and godly people based on preferences that we could be treating as non-negotiables. And so today we're talking having a part two conversation about ethnicity and dating. And a few weeks ago we did a round table It was an incredible conversation with three single people. Um, We had an amazing black woman named Abigail on there. We had an amazing Asian man named Gareth, and then an incredible Hispanic woman, Gabriella, who is actually on our Heart of Dating team. I love Gabriella. Shout out, girl. And and but then even from that conversation, we talked about a lot of the, you know, just judgments, initial assumptions and judgments that come when you meet somebody of a different ethnicity or when you even encounter them on a dating app and just the reality of how many people have a quote unquote type, a quote unquote ethnic type, and they swipe left on somebody just based on seeing their ethnicity, a photo of them. Mm. And Mm. then not only that, we dove into the hypersexualization of certain ethnicities and just the assumptions of how certain ethnicity groups would show up in dating. And so we kind of debunked that. But then after that, we, a lot of other questions came up, you know, there was like, well, what about this? What about that? And as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, it would be incredible to have somebody who's in an interracial marriage, come on and talk about what it's like to go through the differences truly, and then marry that person and walk through dynamics of different communities and different backgrounds and family as well and dealing with family. And so I'm so happy to have you and I'm so excited for this conversation. And as we dive into it, I would love for the people to know a little bit more about you and what you do and just the passions that you have for this world. So would you just share that to start and then we'll dive into the rest of the combo. (laughs) Sure. If I give you like the super short 10 second version of it, this is how I often introduce myself in different spaces. I'll say I'm Canadian by birth, Korean by heritage. 
Mexican by marriage, American by immigration, but above all, a kingdom citizen. Yes. And I think when I use that as an intro, it's, it already says so much about me. I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're looking at me or if you can hear my voice, you'd assume that I'm a woman. Um, <laughs> I am married with four kids. So that's another thing I'll add in there that we have four beautiful Latasian babies. We, <laughs> we made up a term, I guess. I, I'm sure we're not the only ones. Latasian. I love that. That's yeah. So we're, we're Latasian. Um, but we, yeah, so there's so many different elements that make us who we are. And I've often, you know, when you do a bio, I, I've often wondered, you know, is it normal for, I mean, do, I don't know that white folks start this way, but, you know, <laughs> I, I quite often start with, well, I'm Korean by heritage, right? Or I'm Korean. When, when people ask you on the playground, what are you? You know, for me, that was like, what ethnicity are you, right? And so... Um, I think that that's always been a big part of my, my identity, but I wanted to expand it a little bit more. And obviously that's not the entirety of who I am, but it's often a good starting point because I do love to talk about uh, my ethnic and cultural heritage. Uh, being Canadian plays into it. Um, hey, you, know, hey girl, you know that I'm Canadian too, right? Did we talk about this? You know what? I think we did, but you didn't grow up in Canada. <laughs> I didn't grow up, but I had okay. so many influences from my parents and I, I was born there, but didn't live there very long, but I love it. I mean, grew up going there every single year, multiple times what a year. What part of Canada? And- yeah, in Ontario. To, uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, right outside of Toronto is where I was born. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Okay, hold on. I was born in Hamilton. Where were you born? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was born in Ajax. I know exactly where Hamilton okay. is, actually. No, <laughs> I actually don't know where Ajax is, so you're more Canadian than I am right now. There we go. But, oh, awesome. And fun fact, this is just a side note. I don't think I've ever shared this, but my dad is still a Canadian citizen and refuses to become an American citizen because he just loves his Canadian, Canadian citizenship. He's like... Like, I'm Canadian. <laughs> Kate, you know that if you were born in Canada, you, according to Canadian standards, you'll always be Canadian. Yes. So yeah. you you are still, by Canada standards, you're still a Canadian citizen. Oh, for sure. But anyways. I went back a few years ago, walked on, like, got off the plane, hadn't been back in so long, and they were like, welcome home. And I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> you know, and it was see? so sweet. Yeah. It was, it was sweet. I love Canadians. Can we have some old Canada background music playing? Right? I know. <laughs> Seriously. Anyways. Yeah. I love it. Anyway. But um, <sighs> as much as I love Canada and I love Canadians, um, I, I do, I, obviously, I think because of the way I look, too, I can't deny the fact that I have Korean heritage. And I I think that's a journey that a lot of people take. You guys might have talked about this a little bit um, in other episodes. But uh, I think for a lot of Asian kids who grew up in the U.S. or Canada, um, many of us have gone through the tension of, uh, you know, how much do I want to embrace my Asian identity? Because a lot of us, if we grew up in spaces where we weren't the majority, which is most places, if you grew up anywhere outside of like Hawaii or little pockets of LA, um, you know, we, there was shame in like bringing your lunch. If it was like a home cooked meal, you didn't want to bring your, your ethnic foods to school because you didn't want kids to think that it was quote unquote weird or strange. Oh, right. Yeah. So there's a lot of grappling that happens. And then I think a lot of times for most people, maybe in their college, young adult years, that's when you really start to dive into your ethnic identity more. And I think a beautiful thing is when people start to embrace it and and they realize, wow, I wish I hadn't been ashamed of it or I wish I would have leaned into it a little bit more. Um, And oftentimes we can't control, you know, our environment when we're in elementary school. Um, But I think that as, you know, as for me, I'm a second generation Korean American or Korean Canadian. And so as my kids, although they've got this mix of all these other cultures that are, are sort of uh, integrating now, I want them to grow up with a great sense of pride in being Korean, um, Mm. in in what it means to be Mexican. So for my kids, um, they're actually in a dual immersion school. In LA, we do have the option of there's actually a couple of Korean uh, immersion schools, uh, but there's a lot more Spanish immersion schools. And and we just figured that it would be uh, A, an easier language for us to give them any sort of help they might need in. Uh, but B, it'll, it'll be very useful for them, especially in California, to be able to speak Spanish. So, yeah, all the way from kindergarten up to middle school, they'll be doing um, their schooling in both Spanish and English. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. yeah <laughs> I wish I could go just, back and do that personally. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's not too late, but their, their yeah. minds are so malleable. Yeah, that's so great. 
So I would love to, and so you just said it, you're in an interracial marriage and your husband, I would love to know about his, a little bit of his background and and a little bit of your background and maybe kind of tell us a little bit about how you guys even got connected and your story. And then let's dive into some of the nuances of some of the other elements here that apply. But yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about Marcus. Yeah. Well, actually, let me back up. I didn't tell you the background. Yes. I, just, I tell gave me. you that. Tennis, okay. And yeah, then yeah, I'll go yeah. into how we met and got connected. <laughs> so for me, I grew up in Canada, but we moved from the East Coast over to the West Coast in Vancouver when I was six. Grew up in Vancouver. Um, yeah, my parents were actually corner store owners. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the show Kim's Convenience. Um, no, I haven't. <laughs> oh my goodness. Check it out on Netflix. I'm actually shocked at how many non-Asian people love the show. For me, it's a deeply personal show because it's like the story of, it's like my life story. I mean, it's, it's a corner store in Canada um, and all the, I mean, it's, it's a comedy, so everything's exaggerated, but there's so many nuances of that show that I can relate with, um, even with the Korean Christian community, because uh, at one point, I think it was about 80% of the Korean community was involved in church, the, those wow. who are of the immigrant community, and because it was a it was an immigrant meeting place. So grew up kind of with that same sort of backstory, but when I was in junior high, um, my mom came to know Jesus at, in in a very Holy Spirit, just anointed type of way. Um, and she, for years, had prayed that my, my dad would come to know Jesus the way that she had come to know the true and living God, right? And so we, we grew up going to church, but I saw a radical transformation happen in my dad when I was in junior high. And right around that time when I just saw that he was really living for Jesus now, um, he told my mom, you know, I think God's calling us to the mission field. My mom was like, whoa, 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 hold on. I, I was just praying for you to get saved. You know, like, I'm not there with you <laughs> He's yet. like, I'm not. What do you mean, mission field? Right, no, right. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but then, so around the same time, our store burnt to the ground in an electrical fire in the middle of the night. And so my dad had this moment where he was just kind of like, I don't know about you, but I think God's speaking to us. <laughs> So at that point, they were like, okay, well, let's, yeah, let's pray on this. And they ended up going to South America. Um, so they went to Brazil for about three years, and then they went to Ecuador. So it took time to get there. They were, you know, doing the training and getting ready, waiting support, all that. And so as I was graduating from high school and about to go into college, my parents were making the transition to go to the mission field. So sort of like my older brother and I sent them off um, as we're in college, we stayed yeah. home and they went off to the mission field. Bye, mom and dad. Um, Enjoy yeah. your trip. Yeah, that's right. amazing. Right. Which we'll be back home freedom. holding down the fort. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> holding down the fort in quotation marks. Um, yeah, exactly. So I did have my, my little, you know, I had a few little rebellious years there and it went and was like, okay, well, I've got my good foundation of church and I've got my boundaries, but I'm going to go experience the world a little bit. And, you know, if any of us who are listening to this have gone through that, you know that that doesn't usually turn out very well. Um, <laughs> So I really did sort of experience a homesickness for, for the church community. And I remember in my years where I was kind of walling out a little bit, um, a friend of mine invited me to church. And I, I really, I can't explain it any other way other than to say that I felt homesick um, when I was sitting there listening to worship. And I, I was in a space where I felt like oh, this should feel like home to me, but I, it feels foreign to me now. I, I, I began to long for it more. So went on this journey where, yeah, God just kind of really recaptured my heart. And by my second year of college, um, I really was just like, I, I just want, I want to live my life for the Lord now. And so I went through this sort of transformation during college and I wanted to give my life to ministry. Um, I actually started out wanting to do journalism and I always had a heart for justice. Um, I think having grown up as an Asian, specifically a Korean, um, Korean Canadian kid who grew up with parents who had just emerged from like a war torn country. Um, my parents were the first generation that were born outside of the Japanese occupation of Korea. I'll go into this a little bit more later, but, uh, because of the Japanese occupation in Korea, my parents' generation of Koreans were very, very proud to be Korean because essentially their culture had almost been stripped from them. So for them, it was really important that we were proud to be Korean. So growing up, I, I always heard my dad say, you know, if anybody ever calls you a name, like a, you know, he would say like the racial slur or, you know, if rude, anybody ever teases you for being Korean, then make sure you tell your older brother, let your older brother help you handle it. <laughs> um, 
And so I think that that was always on my radar. You know, like my dad had prepared us saying that there are people who are going to treat you differently because you are Korean, right? And I tell the story often too about how on the playground, one of my first encounters with uh, this one blonde haired, blue eyed boy uh, on the swings was he turns to me and he says, what are you? Are you Chinese or Japanese? And when I told him that I was Korean, his response to me was, no, you're not. There's no such thing. And, oh so, and then he jumped off the swings and just walked away. So for me, it was right. Like in your mind, my people don't even exist. So I always had that on my radar. And then the other elements of that, because my parents were Korean store owners uh, in 92, Anybody who grew up uh, in that era or, you know, in L.A. specifically, there was the 92 riots or the L.A. Mm. uprising, as some people will call it now. And that was a very specific narrative. Um, Part of the narrative was surrounding the Korean and black community in South Central. Right. And so there's a lot of Korean store owners who had their stores burnt down or there was a lot of violence. There were lots, you know, people killed, obviously, with all the police, you know, Rodney King, all of those different elements in there. Koreans were part of that story. And the narrative that we heard was that there was tension between the Korean community and the black community specifically. And so I remember feeling really um, like even though we were removed from it and I was sort of hearing about this, listening to the stories around it from Canada it felt very personal and it felt like my heart ached around it. Like I knew that that wasn't, that, that wasn't right. It wasn't good. Um, and so I had a friend who moved, she was actually Japanese, but she lived around that area and they moved away from LA to Vancouver because of some of those tensions. And so I remember hearing from her too, what that was like. And so even from high school, I remember just being very burdened about the racial tensions, specifically between the Korean and black community. And I think again, like because of some of those, things that I grew up with, um, I just had a heart for racial reconciliation. So when God really captured my heart in college, I started thinking towards ministry. Um, I wanted to do journalism when I first started out in college. I wanted to do investigative journalism, perhaps surrounding stories about racial <laughs> injustice awesome. and those type of things. Yeah, but then God really geared my heart towards uh, racial reconciliation. So long story short, I went to this conference called Urbana. Um, in the year 2000. Yeah, it's a conference hosted by InterVarsity and there's like 20,000 students there, many people who will pursue a life of missions afterwards, right? So I came across an organization, um, an urban ministry called World Impact, and their headquarters were in South Central LA. So I think the semester before I graduated, I came out to LA for a weekend. uh, And basically, I left that weekend begging God to be this for this to be the place that God would send me and, and do ministry and live life and learn. So I had some obstacles getting there. I had some visa problems and whatnot. Um, but eventually, maybe about six months after I graduated, uh, I ended up in South LA and was really there as like, just like, God, I just, whatever you want to teach me, I'm here, I'm available. I definitely do not come in as an expert on anything. I'm like a freshly graduated from college, but I just, I want to come, I want to learn, I want to serve, and I just want to live in this community. And, you know, Kate, I went to seminary, I went to Fuller, and all the good and all the bad that comes with seminary, (laughs) all the thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in tuition that you pay for seminary, um, that can't compare to the education that I got just living in the community and learning from the people that I lived with. So I lived in a mostly black and brown community. Um, So many different ethnicities represented just on my block. We had people from Guatemala, El Salvador, Belize, um, you know, just, you know, everybody thinks that, a lot of people think that Latin community in um, in certain pockets are just Mexican, right? But it's just, it's so rich and diverse. And I just learned so much in my years of youth ministry. So I did mostly youth ministry in those years that I was with World Impact there for 14 years. Um, and just, yeah, got to grow so much in my appreciation for other cultures, in my own leadership too, because I, I was a youth leader. I, I grew in my development of um, teaching the scriptures and preaching. Um, and lots of different leadership capacities, right? But my husband, on the other hand, he grew up in, um, so right on the border of um, Illinois and Indiana. So Southside Chicago, I think people have a picture of what what that's like, mostly black and brown community. 
Um, and he kind of grew up in the tension of that. So he, um, he actually, in his elementary school years, saw white flight happen from his community. So wow. uh, historically, it was like a you know blue-collar white town. And then as he was growing up, he saw the black and brown community increase and the white flight happen from his community. And so, yeah, he also talks about how in high school, there was a lot of um, culture clashes between the white and brown or in black and brown community. And he actually grew up like, you know, he's, he's proud to be Mexican, um, but there's also some solidarity, solidarity that you have between the black and brown community, but they also often fought one another. So for him, he was always getting in fights. He had a lot of brothers and cousins, um, his cousins particularly, that were always getting in trouble and were caught up in the gang life and everything. And so in 10th grade, he ended up dropping out of high school um, just because there was there were threats on his life um, in his high school. And so he later he ends up going to get his GED. He ends up getting two master's degrees because God just kind of put him down this path. But the same thing for him. Yeah. He went from like, you know, most people would have thought that he would have ended up as a statistic, um, either in jail or killed. And that was the story for a lot of his cousins. But God, yeah, did just the miraculous in him as well at around 18 or 19. Um, and he ended up getting his GED and then he went to Bible college. So he went oh to gosh. Moody Bible College. Oh, he went to Moody. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So then for him too, when he was in college, he just had this desire to see people from the city. Like specifically he, he went there and he was like, well, where are all the black and brown folks here? And so he ended up on his, by his own initiative, started recruiting people to come to the school. Um, and, and then they offered him a job. So they created a role where he specifically was recruiting black and brown students from under-resourced communities to come to Moody. Yeah, and so for people who don't know, Moody, you can go there for free. Um, you pay for your books and your board, but um, it's, it's a tuition-free school. Um, and he helped in the admissions office to help, uh, you know, look through the applications and such. Anyways, God ended up, he also did youth ministry in um, like the dividing line between the black and brown community in Little Village or La Vida in Chicago and did a lot of reconciliation work there. Um, we ended up meeting at a CCDA conference, so a Christian Community Development Association conference, where a lot of like-minded people who are about um, being Christians who live out word and deed, right? Like gospel, there's no such thing as social justice. It's just, it's part of the gospel, right? It's yes. just like the gospel is, <laughs> is, is justice. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of like-minded folks there. And so we discovered we had uh, friends in common. And then he ended up moving out to uh, Pasadena, where uh, we were both at Fuller at the same time. So we started dating while we were there. And then we began our journey of, ironically, we were both part of the intercultural studies program. Yeah, uh, and so that's we hilarious. Joked that, right, right. So we joked that as a part of the practicum, we had to date somebody outside of our own culture. <laughs> um, and people believe us a lot of the times. Uh, but, you know, that would be some sort of practicum, wouldn't it? But yeah, I mean, it ended up working out well for us. Uh, but we did talk a lot about, and I think this is what you'll ask me to go into more, but um, we did talk a lot about our own cultural heritage and how that played out in our dating relationship and then eventually in marriage. Yeah. So I would love to go into that because I think obviously you guys have such amazingly unique, complex, beautiful backgrounds that of God like doing so much and and like bringing you to this place where you're in the same kind of program at seminary and just absolutely incredible. But I'm just so curious when you guys started dating, because for the people listening, what I'm experiencing is there's a lot of people listening that either are like hesitant to date someone of a different ethnicity, or they may be doing it right now. They may be dating someone of a different ethnicity at this moment. I did receive a lot of messages when I put up some polls on Instagram about this, just of like, hey, I am struggling right now. And I really love or care about my boyfriend or my girlfriend, but there are just some cultural differences here and things that we're discussing and moving through. And then of course, there's the family piece that we'll get into. But how did, what was it like in the beginning for you guys? I know you like, obviously you both have such unique experiences and backgrounds being in the U S and Canada and just everything you experienced, but like meeting one another, 
to me, it doesn't seem like there's anything hesitant from either one of your ends. You can correct me if I'm wrong, being like, oh, he's, you know, this ethnicity and therefore I don't know about that. And I don't, it doesn't sound like there was anything really on his end either, but I'm sure that as you started dating, there were things that came up that you're like, oh, this needs to be discussed or how do we enter into each other's worlds? And so what did that look like having those conversations early on? And how did you guys kind of let one another into those cultural backgrounds? Was there any Anything ever any correcting that needed to happen or you know I'll just yeah. kind of throw that and let you answer however you want yeah I mean there's a ton of different stories that I could uh, jump off of to make this point but the first thing that I thought of was when you said it doesn't seem like he had any uh hesitation it's funny because uh, it's, it's it's not funny actually but it's, it's ironic um so he is one of five kids he's right in the middle he's, so he's got two older brothers and his second oldest brother he said that in high school, so his first girlfriend was Asian. She was Vietnamese. And so after he started dating her, all of the girlfriends that he had since have all been Asian. Oh my and gosh. so Marcos said that at one point, um, you know, he saw his brother date Asian women only. And so he like got into a, I don't know if it was a full on fist fight, but they got in a fight. And, no way. <laughs> and, and in, in the, at the end of it, Marcos was like, you're such a sellout. You never date any of your own women. You only date Asian women. And so he was just like, I mean, this was before he was saved too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like, but but he, he got in this big fight with his brother. And so later, obviously when he and I started dating, his brother just had such a good little laugh about that. And he was like, oh, okay, who's the sellout now? Right. <laughs> but even, yeah. you know, even the language around that, like that you're selling out by dating somebody outside of ethnicity, I think that it's indicative of the fact that there's an inner work that needs to be done in you. So I think it's one thing that, you know, you take pride. Like I talked about it. My parents wanted to instill a pride in being mm. Korean because yeah. of our history. Like we almost were not a people anymore because it was almost taken from us. And so for my parents to instill in us out of an oppression, out of a struggle, hey, be proud of who you are. That's one thing. But when the pride turns into something sinful and ugly, and it's like, oh, if you don't stick with your people, that's you're, you know, like you're a sellout. It doesn't come from a healthy place. So I think the thing that I wanted to point out in Marcos was that, you know, this was before God did the work in him. And just because we're followers of Jesus, it doesn't mean that we don't have junk that we need to deal with, right? Exactly. Like we know yep. <laughs> day by day. I think the older you get, the more you recognize, man, I am really a person who needs God's grace daily. I need, I need the forgiveness. I need the righteousness of God, right? And so I think that for Marcos, one thing that really shifted in him, uh, he said, you know, he actually tells this story as well. He said, like I said, he grew up like, getting in fights all the time. And so there was this tension between the black and brown community uh, within his schools and his neighborhood. And right after he had gotten saved, um, he went into his sister's room and she found uh, a picture um, of a young African-American boy on her nightstand or something. You know, like those school yeah. photos that we used to yes. share? Yes. Oh my gosh. So yeah, the little, yeah right. the little rectangle ones. You just had them out. Yeah. <laughs> do they do that anyway? Anyways. I don't know, um, but you could write like little notes on the back. Oh my gosh. Right. Flash me back, girl. Anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he sees this photo of this one boy and he's like, he picks it up and he's like, you dating a brother? And, and he was angry about it, right? And he said before his sister could say anything about it, like God checked his heart. And he was like, that, that's so ugly in me. Why would I react that way? Right. And so, I mean, it's one thing to be a protective older brother, but the, his reaction was because he's this black guy on, her, you know, the picture yeah. on, on a nightstand. And, and he just, he had this visceral reaction to it. And he just, you know, he recognized how ugly it was. And so he said he went into his room and he just like spent time in prayer, like repenting and just saying, God, this is so ugly in me. Um, I don't want this. I don't want this to be a part of my story. And he said that really, it was like, he prayed the prayer, God, pour out my life like a drink offering to the nation, right? I, I don't know if he really knew, like that was, you know, there's extreme suffering that's attached to that, but yeah. <laughs> um, but really what he was saying, like, I want my heart to be for the nation. Like, I don't want this ugliness. I don't want this bias. I don't want any, you know, a, any sort of racism in my heart. 
And so for him, like God really did a work, like I said, too, he ended up being a youth pastor in a community that was like right on the dividing line. Chicago's a very segregated city. And so it was the dividing line between um, uh, a Latin and Black community. And he ended up working with a Black sister who was also very much about re uh, reconciliation. And they just had a beautiful ministry where it was just like where you wouldn't see that in the community. There were black kids, black kids and brown kids all in one space together because they were part of the church. Right. Mm. And um, so I think God really just developed a love uh, for the black community uh, in him and a heart of reconciliation. So all that to say, when we started dating, I think the Asian community was actually probably the least familiar to him. Uh, and so he said as much. So he came in just saying, hey, there's not a lot that I know about the Asian community. And for him, he said, it, it's different because even when I went to Moody and even at Fuller, so these are both Christian institutions. He said, one thing that I've always noticed is that Asian people tend to stick to themselves more than anyone else. And he said, amongst that group, the Koreans seem to really be, all, there's like almost like an invisible wall that's hard to penetrate because the Koreans really tend to stick together. And so I heard that and I was like, you know, it stung a little because I was like, you know, it's not untrue. I see it too. And I don't mm -hmm. think that it's, I don't think that it's a good thing, but there's reasoning behind it too. And so I did tell him, like, he had never heard the history of the, the Japanese occupation in Korea. He didn't hear the stories about how, you know, even just what I started with, you know, the sort of the shame that we experienced growing up. Like there was a lot of us went through this process of like wanting to deny our Asian heritage. And then once you get older, there's this embracing of it. So you want to lean into it more. And then you look for people who can resonate with you, look for people yeah. who understand you. Right. And so I think a lot of it kind of came from um, protectionism. Some of it came from just a genuine desire to like fully celebrate and embrace who we are for the first time. And so I think as I talked through sort of those narratives with him, it gave him a better understanding of why we do what we do, but also wanting to be like, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's write something different for our story, you know? Um, he, so I love the fact that he came in uh, as a learner, you know? Yes, I was he just going to say that. Yeah. Like he, he came in curious. Like even that right there is such a great tool. You know, if you are willing and you're able through the series or whatever else to say, you know what, I had some biases before and I want to challenge those. And I don't want to just say I have a specific type when it comes to ethnicity. You know, maybe let me let me break that down. Let me, let me try to date somebody that maybe I wouldn't have dated before. And if you can do that and take that step, I think another great tool in that is just to be humble, to admit like, hey, I don't know actually a lot about your culture and I don't know a lot about the history there. And either I wasn't around it a lot or I just didn't learn about it. And I would love to know more. If you'd be willing, like I'd love to enter into to your world a little bit more. Hey friends, so here's the deal. For this ad break, I want you to take a break. If you've been dreaming about a beach getaway, but you're nowhere near the ocean, maybe it's time to get a bit creative. Well, with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, you can listen to the relaxing sounds of the waves and give yourself a break wherever you are and at whatever time of day. Did y'all know that I actually listen to the sound of rain or even the ocean to sleep? I love it. And honestly, I now can't sleep without it. Calm gives you the tools that improve the way you feel. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, and even drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. Now for listeners of Heart of Dating, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Kate. You can go to calm.com slash Kate for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash Kate. All right, y'all. I hope you have a peaceful, dreamy sleep tonight. That curiosity, first of all, I think is so, is just like what we need overall in life, but then also right. in dating, like no matter who you're dating, they're going to have a background of some kind that you don't understand potentially, you know, whether it's an ethnic background that you don't understand or like a background of trauma that you don't understand or something, you know? And so having that lens of curiosity and asking and being humble, it's a humble curiosity to be like, 
I don't know about this and I would love to know more. And, you know, and just keeping asking questions because I think that's where people are afraid today to even do that, you know, to even enter in with curiosity. They're like afraid of offending people. They're afraid of they maybe they don't even want to know or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm like, well, but how beautiful was that for him to just lead with that? You know, like these are the things I've noticed and I don't really know why that is. And I want to know more. Can you tell me more? Right. I love that. So, too. yeah, no, you totally hit it on the head with the, the humility part and the curiosity part. So these are two things that I talk a lot about if I do any sort of culture training or if I'm being asked to speak on. Oh, so this is another part of, you know, tell us what you do and tell us your background. So I was in youth and young adult ministry for a long time. And then when Marcos and I got married, we had four kids within six years. Uh, so I was essentially always pregnant or nursing or having a baby. And so, <laughs> so in those four you years. You amaze me. Like that's amazingly, well, it wow. wasn't necessarily on purpose, but that's just how God gave it to us, right? And so I think in the first, with the first two, we did a lot of like, just take the baby along with us, but it, it progressively got harder. Um, and so for a few years, I was kind of just like, um, my ministry was more just in the home, you know, just taking care of the babies and whatnot. Um, again, just a lot of God stories in there, but God in the more recent years, in the last few years has really opened up uh, a lot more speaking opportunities for me. So I've really, I, you know, for 14 years, I did mostly, or for good 10 years, at least, um, I did a lot of preaching and speaking to the youth that we, we met together every week, sometimes several times a week. And I was always teaching from the Bible. I was always, I was preaching at youth group. And so for, for 10 years, I was doing this work without recognizing, like, I'm doing a lot of pastoral ministry here because it was outside of a traditional church model. We had like a teen community center. Anyways, um, all of those years of development, when I wasn't in it, uh, when I was at home with the kids, I began to realize I really missed it. And so in the last few years, God has really opened up the doors for me to do a lot more teaching and preaching, mostly to adults, sometimes still to youth. Um, I think it's a different anointing and gifting to speak to children. And even though I have a lot of children, that's not my gifting. <laughs> but but so I do get invited to speak about um, culture and diversity and that type of thing. And that's that, that that's its own thing. But um Cultural mentorship and cultural humility are two terms that I'll talk about. And uh, first with the humility part and the questioning part, I think um, it's helpful when people, because the word cultural competence is used mm. a lot, even in secular workspaces. So you have yeah. diversity trainings, you have cultural competency courses. And while I think that the heart of it is often good, well-intentioned, um, I think where it missed misses the mark is that some people think that it's like a check, uh, like a box that you can check off. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, you take a course and, hey, I'm culturally competent now. But really, I, I love the term cultural humility. And it was actually a coin that was termed within the medical field. So there, there were nurses who talked about how in serving um, a community that was very diverse, cultural humility was always very helpful to them because it was this posture of lifelong learning. Because culture... What it means to be Korean for me differs from what it means to be Korean for my parents' generation, right? There's different dynamics there. And so um, I think that cultural humility is, is exactly what we talked about, that, that curious humility. Like, I want to learn more. Can you help me learn? And it's this mutual understanding that we're going to learn from one another. I'm going to ask questions in the places I'm, I'm um, deficient and the places where I need to grow. Uh, but there's also a humility to – this was off air, but – Kate, I love, I, I knew that I was going to come back to this because you had said, hey, Susie, I am, I, I don't pretend to be the expert in this field, but um, when we're talking about culture, if I say something that's off or wrong, just like call me out on it. I'm totally hoping that please do that, right? And that, that is a sign of humility. Like in, in, in cultural humility, you need to, and this is very relevant to the Asian community. So if you're a white person who wants to learn in your um, learn about the Asian culture and, and exactly what you did, uh, if you ask the other person, hey, will you please do that for me? That it, it, it gives me permission to speak into your life because for me as an Asian person, it actually would feel offensive for me to call you out on something if you didn't ask permission for it. It would, wow, you know, wow, everybody's yeah. different, yeah, yeah. but yes. in it, Culturally speaking, I am not going to call you out on something. It's not as easy for me to do that because we're a shame-based culture where I don't, I want to save face for you. Like, I don't want to shame you publicly. Um, but since you ask permission for that, that's, it's, there's a different dynamic there, right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, and so this also kind of ties into the idea of cultural mentorship. Uh, so if we can seek out cultural mentors, so somebody who is not of the same ethnicity as you, and I think it's important to note, um, I think when we live in America, because the dominant culture is white culture, uh, many of us without knowing have learned to navigate through life through white centering. So yeah. mm -hmm. uh, whiteness is the norm. When we go to school, when we go to work, when we're in mixed spaces, even at church, many of us without even knowing uh, acculturate to the levels of comfort of whiteness, right? So whiteness is the standard. So if we can have a gauge in our mind, and again, we give permission to one another to say, hey, without having to white center, would you tell me, would you teach me about your culture? Would you tell me, um, you know, what are some practices? So I think this is important in the dating world because I know that we want to ask questions of one another and it's a great place to do that. But if you can, if you can be intentional about diversifying your friendships before you diversify your dating life, yes. it's, a safe, it's a much safer place to ask those questions, you know? Oh, well, and I find a lot of people are saying, because I, here's the thing, my quick background was that I grew up in Connecticut, outside of Canada, I, grew, I then grew up in Connecticut, and in a, a town that was very, that lacked diversity completely. You know, we had, I, I probably had only a handful of Asians in my schooling, and really no black people, and very little Hispanic as well, and so it was pretty much all white in my specific town, in my upbringing, until I moved away from there in, early in my high school, um, and then outside of that, I started getting tastes for different cultures, and then moved to New York, moved to LA, moved abroad, and just, you know, then I started really diversifying, like, oh my gosh, there's all these different cultures I actually love and enjoy, I want to get to right. know, but then I found myself, even years years ago. And I was going to church in Santa Monica and I love my church, but I started realizing um, we had a talk from Brian Stevenson, who I love. Mm -hmm. And I said this on a previous podcast too, but he's just like, once I got into his work and, you know, just dove into prison ministry and all of that, I just was like, man, this, it, he, what he's doing is so profound. But what I loved what he said is like, you don't know things unless you get into proximity with those people, you know, and the, and the, those situations. And so I looked around at my church and I realized I love my church community. And then I started realizing because we we're in Santa Monica, just, it was so whitewashed, you know, it just was right. like, and that's yeah. not necessarily the heart of the, the leadership, but that was just like, who was drawn to that specific area. And I was like, man, I love this church. I'm still going to go to this church. But for a while I took that summer off and from the church and actually went to some other churches yes. um, in yes. different areas and around LA. And I went to a Hispanic speaking church for a few months and I was like, man, this is incredible. Um, or a Hispanic based church, I should say. And right. it right. was That's just yeah. absolutely amazing to just meet. They were so friendly, so wonderful. I was like one of the only white people in there and mm -hmm. I loved that experience. And I say that to say, it brought me on this journey to say, okay, who are my friends? What do they look like? What are their back? Backgrounds like, and who am I being poured into by, you know? And I had to intentionally start seeking out just new friendships. Um, I still have so many of my same friendships, but you know, like who else am I friends with? And ironically, I will say this I have the most Asian friends in my life than any other <laughs> ethnicity, and I love it. Right. It's like most of my best friends are of different Asian backgrounds, but all different, actually, all different yeah. Asian backgrounds. Well, you live in SoCal um, now, so yeah, exactly. Well, true, yeah, exactly. But, you know, outside of that, like, what does it look like to have more friends of Hispanic background and African-American background? And so right. just coming back to your point, like that has to be and no matter what church you're in, because I hear a lot of people are there like, well, my whole community looks like this. And I'm like, OK, I understand. But it doesn't mean that you can't go outside of that and intentionally try to diversify who you're being friends with. If we look at the life of Jesus, that's what he did. Like, let's be honest, like his entire inner circle of people, the people that he chose to, to ask to walk alongside of him, all were differing in their backgrounds mm. and what they were like. And they were just, you know, it's a mixed bag of who he brought in. And I think that that is like the kind of picture that I want to walk more into, you know, whether or not that my upbringing was that way or my church community was that way, what could I personally do to start getting curious and start diversifying some of those friendships, which then to your point makes it makes it automatically you're you become more open to dating different ethnicities and then 
you know, you start, you get to know a little bit more, but even before you go on a date with them. So that was my little side tangent. I just wanted to say that I think that is so important. If you were coming into this conversation, you're like, well, I never date a different ethnicity. I'm like, well, do you even have friends of any different ethnicity? Do you, (laughs) do you even want to seek out cultural change and cultural humility? And if not, maybe this is an, an opportunity to, to first of all, figure out why. And second of all, hopefully start down that path, even with diversifying your friends. Yeah. And we have so much to learn from one another. So even apart from, okay, so I say this a lot too, like there's a reason why, okay, this isn't the only reason why, but I think it's a beautiful picture, a, a beautiful parallel that the church is called the bride of Christ, you know? And so even as we are in this marriage, you know, within the body of Christ, you the multi-ethnic church is is beautiful and it's rich, but it's complicated and it's hard, right? And so when we're looking at multi or, or cross-cultural relationships, when you're asking two cultures to come together and become one, they're, you know, even if you're of the same culture in marriage, it's so tough sometimes. Yeah. And so understanding one another's family of origin is so important, whether you're from different cultures or not. But when you have the added cultural element, you need to do the work to understand your family system. Like, why are you uh, are you an individualistic type family or are you a communal family? Right. Like for for both of us, Marcos and I, we grew up with our grandmothers in the house. So for both of us, it was like, oh, if if in the future, one of our our mothers or fathers has to come live with us, that's that's like a given. That's how we grew up. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's not the same for everybody. Um, So looking back at the way that your families deal with conflict, um, how do you do dinner? How do you do like, like, how do you do forgiveness? All of these things have a cultural element to them. Um, and so it's really important to understand. That's why you have to do the work yourself too, to understand your own cultural. Um, like many of us don't know that, you know, we can chalk it up to personality, but so much of it has to do with your cultural upbringing as well. Um, and so to do the work and investigate, well, how much, and a lot of white people don't think that they have a culture and that's, just, that's a total lie, but we all yeah. have an element of culture, right? Yes. And so we have to do the work to understand it. Yeah. It's so interesting that you're bringing up the individual versus communal families and forgiveness and how you did dinner. I'm like now, cause I've been thinking about that yeah, or that's come into a lot of my relationships too, whether or not we're of a different cultural background, like we still have a unique family of origin and those things affect how you show up in relationships, how you maybe the idea that you have for your family in the future as well, and how you would function later in life. And so I think, you know, because I did get a lot of DMs from people in actual um, interracial relationships right now. And they're like, man, the way we deal with conflict is so different. Or man, the way they you know, their relationship with their family looks a lot different than my relationship with my family and how involved their family is versus how involved my family is, you know? And I think it's so important to know that about yourself and know also like why that is, but also where the health and unhealth is on certain things and start just navigating it for yourself um, and healing from some of those things. Susie, that would be a question I'd love to like kind of go into because with the different family of origins and the different family upbringings and dynamics, that also is something that's going to play into how you show up in your relationship. And even, you know, getting into the family conversation, I want to touch on that quickly as much as we can too, like families that play a big role. And there are certain cultural upbringings where people may like, it is like built in the DNA that this is, you know, you run it by your family and it has to, you know, bring pride to your family or whatever it is. And that can run the gamut of across of a lot of different cultures, actually. And so would love to hear from you a little bit about the conversation with family and how that can impact interracial relationships. Sure. Uh, I want to speak a little bit in, in general terms, um, because everybody's story is very different. Uh, I think a lot of times people seek out Marcos and myself because we are in a cross-cultural relationship and because historically Koreans have been known. I mean, when, when, when people ask us, they don't ask, hey, Susie, did, did Marcos, 
did their family have a hard time accepting you? It's, it's more often they ask me, hey, did, or they ask Marco, hey, did Susie's family have a hard time accepting you? Mm. Um, because of the history of the Koreans who sort of have this reputation for being less open to other cultures marrying in. This is another thing that would require a much longer conversation. But I think in general terms, too, there is there is unfortunately a spectrum, too. So Asian women are, uh, I think they're the most, uh, statistically speaking, they're, they marry outside of their race more than anybody else. And there's a lot of different reasons to that, which are very unfortunate and hurts my heart. Um, I, you know, obviously, though I'm married to somebody who is not Korean, I love my, my Asian brothers, you know, and I, I, I was a communications major and I did so many papers about the misrepresentation of Asian males in mass media um, and and the stereotypes of Asian women in mass media as well. So all the different things uh, surrounding that, there's one element there. So people would often ask Marcos, like, you know, how did her parents react to you? And I have a different story because my parents were missionaries in South America. They were a little bit more familiar with Latin culture. And by Korean women standards, I was 30 when I got married. And that is, that's not old at all. Okay, let me just say that. But to, in my parents' minds, they thought <sighs> I was going to get married when I was like 24. So for them, right. it was like, oh, yes, so you're getting ancient. married. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, um, so for them, it was like, oh, praise God, there's a godly man who our Susie wants to marry, right? And who wants to marry her. So then <laughs> like, yes, let's do it. But, you know, for my my dad, too, he was like, um, you know, the fact that the two of you live in L.A. and the Mexican community and the Korean community is such a big part of the immigrant community here. I wonder what God wants to do through that. Like, there's a beautiful picture of reconciliation and ministry that God could do through the your cultural background. But I know that that's not the the same story for a lot of people. And we've had a lot of people... Um, so here's a common one, like, so an Asian woman and a black male, you know, if they come together, often it's the Asian woman who will say, Hey, my family is having a really hard time with this. And again, you know, when we look at the spectrum of, um, who marries who often when Asians marry into white families, um, yeah, there's unfortunately a, a more acceptance of that because, um, we're going to get into some technical terms here, but there's like a white adjacency that is prized amongst a lot of Asian communities where the more adjacent to whiteness that you are, the more seemingly successful, quote unquote, mm. successful you might oh. be deemed. Um, and I, I think that obviously is just a lie from the devil, but um, but there is this cultural um, preference of being more white adjacent and then you go down the spectrum and then there's a, a great element of anti-blackness in a lot of communities right and so the challenge of being an asian person who marries like into a black family um or a black person marrying into an asian family um there's there's tensions that exist there and so the conversations that we've had around that have often boiled down to and i don't want this to sound like a cliche but if you are believers these are the types of strongholds that you have to go to God in prayer and fasting in this. Like there are things that time and time again, and sometimes it takes years. Sometimes you don't, you still haven't really seen the resolve of it yet. Um, but time and time again, when people go to God in prayer and fasting, like this is the, per these, this is the person that God has called you to marry. Um, if, if you are fighting for that and you're waiting for your parents to come on board and to be in agreement about it, like you, you really have to have the foundation of prayer um, for God to do the work in that only God can do uh, to to change the hearts of, of of the parents who might not be accepting. And you know, one thing that I wanted to say in this was, although Marcos and I didn't have to face that battle the way that a lot of couples do, um, one thing that Marcos said that actually used to kind of hurt me a little bit, but I really understand it a lot better now, was he tells people, you know, it was really important for me for Susie's parents to accept me as I was like, I, if, if I met them for the first time and we had that same story that a lot of folks have where I could tell that they, they didn't want me to marry her because I was Mexican or because I wasn't Korean. Um, I probably would have walked away from the relationship. Mm -hmm. And in my heart, I was like, what, you wouldn't have fought for me. Like I would, I didn't yeah. mean as much to you, but for him, it was because he really, really values family. And for him, it was like, it, it was a deal breaker for him. And as I think about um, what that means for our children and what that would have meant, you know, as he explained it more, he said, I didn't want to have to constantly fight for their approval. I didn't want them to think that my ethnicity was any sort of deficit instead of an asset. Um, I didn't want my kids to grow up with a sense of um, 
of uh, not feeling enough because or that it was a deficit to them that they were half Mexican. Like I wanted I wanted for me, it was going to be confirmation that her parents saw me and, and who I was and loved me because I want them to be a part of our story as much as as much as they can you know like and my parents are here all the time they have a key role in helping to raise our children um they're they're helping to cultivate cultural pride within them um and and like preserving the heritage and whatnot so I really respect that Marcos could have said that and again you know God brought us together and God you know wrote our story in this way but I know that that's not the same story for everybody but um I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell couples either. Like, you know, if, if they don't accept you or, or if this is going to be a lifelong battle, I, I'm very hesitant to tell people like, but just God's going to do the work and fight through it because it can be really, really harmful and stressful to your relationship. So every relationship is going to be different and it requires the power of the Holy Spirit it needs to be led by the Holy Spirit. And there's an extra grace requi- required when you have that element there. Gosh, that's actually such an interesting, I loved his like explanation of what you, of that. Like if your family didn't approve of me, I don't know if I I would have continued like, and the way he explained that and also how valuable family was for you guys. What's interesting yeah. is family has always been like, you know, a value for me, but I didn't have the kind of family that you spoke of, like, you know, where my grandmother lived in my house and we had like right. our, we had no my family lived mostly in Canada once we moved to the U.S. and we didn't have a lot of immediate family around us at all. And so we actually, to this day, I have, I'm only really close with my immediate family actually. And so it's, what's really interesting is it's a, it's not something I want to continue necessarily in my future marriage, but it's, it wasn't like indoctrinated within me that like, this is how it is. And you have your family right. all around you and your grandmother might be there. And like, it just wasn't that way for me, you know? So I'd be like, Meh. it would maybe be different for me as a response, but I could totally see what he is saying. Like that makes, it makes so much sense for multiple lenses. And so that's super interesting because we did have quite a few people, you know, some writing in saying, man, at first my significant other's family didn't accept me. And then they actually did, which is amazing to see that that happened. I think maybe there's an element there too, Susie, where you do have to know your family and you have to know like, like, are they people that, that change, you know, because there are people out there that are like willing to grow and change and be open. And there's some people who are not. Right. Right. Yeah. So that could be part of the consideration here as well. Man, that's so interesting. As we wrap up this conversation, there's so much we could talk about. That's why I was like, man, I at least have to have another conversation, but there's so much more we could even do. Any more wisdom on just the the challenges that interracial couples may face, but how to like do that together, you know, maybe, and maybe bringing in some own examples from you and Marcus would be awesome. Yeah. I think the power of community is really important to emphasize too. Uh, You may live in, so you might be in an interracial relationship and there might not be a lot of people in your immediate circle, like physically who, um, who you can tap into their wisdom and ask like, uh, hey, are you guys going through this? Can we get some advice or have some solidarity? You might not have that physically near you, but this is the beauty of social media, right? And I think that there are so many different, um, I love seeing that there's all these different interracial couples that are kind of being given a platform to put their life on display. And I know Instagram is not any sort of like, it's not a real, and even reality shows are not reality shows, right? Yeah. Um, they're very carefully curated and it's the highlight reels and whatnot. But if you can really seek out community um, in, in people who can resonate with some of your struggles and some of your victories, you know, like I've said, there's there's been many different couples who have sought us out um, to, to talk through like dynamics. And I think it helps just to know that like that you're not alone in this struggle because there's going to be a struggle. And I wanted to emphasize that about Marcos, too, even though my parents were very accepting of him, they love him. It, it doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. There are so many things, even 11 marriage, 11 years into marriage, there are things that are done or said that are sort of quote unquote cultural faux pas or things that you don't recognize are can be culturally offensive or or and and we're constantly learning and I think that's the main takeaway is um, like just give yourself the grace to know that it's going to be a lifelong journey and give your partner or your partner's families uh, the grace to know that you're on a journey like we're not going to arrive there it'd be perfect um, but 
it's just there's so much grace required. And so this is why we need to be centered in prayer to ask God to give us the grace to continue in these relationships, to build towards something really beautiful um, and, and to do it in community, like seek out people who you can feel understood by, um, can just like go through the struggle together with you. Know that it's worth it. If if this is what God has for you and, and you feel like this is, it can be a really beautiful thing. Um, and it's worth the fight. I think it's something really yeah, beautiful. I love that. Susie, I have just, I have the biggest smile on my face. I'm like, I'm learning so much just in this conversation, which I know means the listeners are learning and it makes me so excited. And I'm so honored to have had you. Our final question that every guest gets asked, and it could be short because you just shared so much actually, uh, even dating advice. But the final question on Heart of Dating is, what is your final nugget of dating advice for the listeners today? <laughs> in the context of everything that I just said, be yeah. open, be mm. open to new things, be open to just, yeah, that was the single best dating advice that I got from an older sister who, you know, told me, Susie, your checklist and all the things that you think that have to match is just ridiculous to me. <laughs> um, it, and it's not to say you can't have a checklist. I know you've already talked about this, but yes. be open because God has so much more in store whether it be foods or, you know, like music or art, like all the things that, that you don't know that you can't appreciate because you've never been exposed to it or that you've never been proximate to it. Just be open to new things and be a learner, be a lifelong learner. I love that. Yes, girl. Amen. Um, if people want to connect with you, the work you're doing, I love it. Where can they do that? <laughs> Yeah, um, I hang out mostly on Instagram. I'm not really on Facebook or Twitter very much or TikTok. <laughs> but, I am um, not at, on TikTok either. My assistant is for us, but yeah, I'm like, what? TikTok, what is this thing? Yeah. <laughs> so at Suzy K. Gomez, or I have a website, SuzyGomez.com. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm preaching regularly at a couple of different churches. So I'm linked to different ways that you can hear my talks as well. Yes. Awesome. Susie, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's amazing. I love it. I love and hearing a bit about Marcos and his story and just how you guys came together. And yeah, it's, it's such, it's just amazing to have a couple who is, you know, not only you're living this out just in your personal lives, but you're also talking about it. You know, you're talking about interracial differences and cultural um, reconciliation and, and the cultural humility, like all the time. And so what a gift to have you impart some of that wisdom for us today on Heart of Dating. I'm just so grateful for you, girl. Thankful to be here. Okay, friends, what an episode. What a series this has been, our compatibility series. I'm just so proud of the work we've done here. Y'all, it's been absolutely amazing. So thank you for following along. Thank you for being a part of this journey on Instagram as well, where we've done tons of polls and talked about your stories. If you are listening to this right now and you don't follow us on Instagram, come join the party. My Instagram is at Kateness. And then our Heart of Dating Instagram is at Heart of Dating. And if you want to see some of our testimonials and stories from people who have been listening to the series, come on over to Instagram. You can see more of our polls and some of our testimonials as well. If you guys have a topic that you want us to cover, please let us know. Write us an email at info at hodpodcast.com. We love hearing from you guys. All right, y'all, that's it for today. I will see you next week. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 